You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Nick. If we don't know each other, I'm a pastor here at Illini Life. We have been uh, jamming to this old school Christian rock this morning. Uh, I wonder if how many of you even know that those songs. I mean, some of you I know. Probably. It was funny during uh, w- when we were preparing for service. It came on, and uh, I, I think Michael said, uh, "You all are too young for this." And I looked at him and said, "You're too young for this. This is like from when I was a kid. It's awesome. It's a great album. You should go listen to it." Uh, DC Talk Jesus Freak. Um, anyways, uh, I'm way off track already. Uh, it's good to be together with you this morning. Uh, I have been enjoying settling into our normal r- weekly rhythms. It's good to be in week two. It feels like it's much further in. Uh, speaking of normal rhythms, I hope you had a chance to join with your small group this week and look at our passage ahead of time, uh, sort of do your pre-lab, right, is the way sometimes we talk about it. But it's okay if you haven't, right, because now is the time in our service where we do a Bible study together. So we're going to take a look at it together. I love this part of our week. You will n- I will never tired of saying this, and you're going to hear me say it all the time. I love getting a chance to look at God's Word with you and see what he has for us. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're uh, going to Get situated, get ready. We got about 30 minutes or so ahead of us of digging into the Bible and seeing what God has for us. Now, if you were here with us last week, you uh, may recall that I shared that we are anchoring ourselves in the book of Ephesians this semester. We're going to take it in two parts, and this first part is these first weeks leading up to the season of Lent. And as we enter into the season of Lent uh, in about uh, two more weeks or so, uh, three weeks, we will uh, be focusing on three key psalms that sort of foreshadow or point to Jesus, messianic psalms. And that'll take us up to spring break. After spring break, we'll come back and uh, we'll have Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and we'll celebrate the resurrection and how that has changed our lives forever. That'll bring us to the final four weeks of Ephesians as we wrap up the semester and then Celebration Sunday. That is a fast overview of the semester, a quick broad brush stroke of where we're going to be. I know it's going to fly by. Uh, That's where we're going to be anchored in God's Word. So you can be studying through the book of Ephesians, look through the Psalms. Uh, That's where we're going to be mostly anchored. Today, as we get, uh, continue on in our study of Ephesians, I want to just give you a brief reminder and overview of the book, just some handholds so you can continue to frame in things as you do your own personal study, as you study in, in your small groups, right? As I, I said last week, Ephesians, it's a, it's a short book, short letter in the New Testament, six chapters, but it's greatly outsized by the contribution, the depth and fullness of its theology and praxis, sort of what, how we're supposed to live, right? Praxis, actionable living, putting our theology into practice, right? As, as best we can tell, the Apostle Paul wrote this book uh, while he was in prison in Rome. You can read about that at the end of, of Acts, that, uh, Acts chapter 28. It's kind of how it ends. Paul's in prison in Rome, house arrest in Rome. Other books that were written around this time, uh, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, we commonly call these the prison epistles or the, the prison letters from Paul, right? It's Pastor Paul writing to churches that he's planted and helping them along when he can't go and be with them. So that's what this book is. Uh, it's uh, Paul and his fellow missionaries. He had a, a close tie to this, to this region, to this church in Ephesus. You can read about uh, the third missionary journey and uh, specifically Paul and his missionary companions as they, as they come to Ephesus in uh, Acts chapter 19. They spend about two years in Ephesus. They, he knew these people well. He knew this church well. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's instructing and, and building up the church there. 
And now some years later, as he's in, uh, under house arrest, he writes to encourage them and to strengthen them, to uh, encourage the church. And, the, and those, the theology, the in- encouragement, the instructions he offers have been shaping Christians uh, ever since. They shape us today. This book has been profound in my life. I found myself deeply connected to it and, and gravitating towards it when I first got saved uh, in high school, and I read and studied it often. So I'm encouraged to, to be back in there with you. I hope it is a blessing to your life, as, as the Lord uh, has encapsulated so much deep truth in here for us to see. As a whole, uh, the book of Ephesians is all about the nature and structure of the church. It's about salvation. It's about how we're saved and how we should live in light of that. Right? Paul summarizes the gospel message in these chapters. He, he tells us God's plan from the foundation of creation was to save us. And he instructs us that he'll continue that until the end of time. And, and then we see how we're supposed to live in light of that. How, how should we respond? Right? How does the knowledge of God's plan to, sh- to save us shape us in how we live? That's the book of Ephesians in a nutshell. Right? So you can think about it as you read, it, it's all anchored in there. Last week, we saw in the opening of this letter that God purposely planned to save us through Jesus from the foundation of creation. Our passage this morning, it offers a tightly packed, succinct explanation of the heart of the gospel as, we can, as he continues to unpack the truth of God purposely planning to save us in Christ. It does so by answering the question, why did God save us? Why did God choose to save us? For what purpose did God intervene and reconcile us to himself? Why did God save us? That is the question Paul is driving at in these 10 verses. Which, uh, side note, if you were here with us last week, uh, no surprise, these 10 verses are just one sentence again. So uh, if, you, if you hang with us by the end of the, uh, end of the day today, you will have had three sentences of the book of Ephesians unpacked for you. So two last week and one this week, that's where we're headed. Uh, it's a long sentence. But as we get started this morning, uh, before we dive into our past, I just want to frame it and think. Think about our lives, our society, the, the, our world around us. Think about, think about story. Think about one of your favorite stories. It could be a classic like Narnia, right? Or it could be a modern classic like the Mario Brothers movie, right? <laughs> awesome. Uh, right? And, and I, 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 I imagine... For all of us, at the heart of the story, because at the heart of all good stories, there's a hero that saves someone that needs saving. There's someone in distress and someone steps in to intervene. Right? The hero, it might be uh, an unassuming, uh, over, easily overlooked hobbit, right? Those are my favorite stories. Uh, or it might be somebody with otherworldly abilities like a Marvel superhero, right? Uh, the reason I would, I would venture to guess that at the heart of your favorite story is a hero saving someone is because that's the heart of the greatest story there ever is. It's the heart of our passage. Every story about heroes saving those in need is retelling this story. It's retelling the greatest story that has ever been written that God, that God created. Knowingly or unknowingly, every story echoes the greatest story that we're about to unpack. It's all connected to it. Our hearts beat for it. Our lives are anchored around it. We, look, we, we are drawn to it because it's the truth we live. It's where we find ourselves. With that, let's consider our passage. Let's take a look at that greatest story. 
our passage, it offers the answer to that question. Why did God save us? And it offers it in three parts. And it breaks, the sentence breaks in kind of three main movements. So if you have your Bible, you can navigate to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, I teach from the ESV. If you didn't know that, that might be easier for you to follow along. If you're in that translation, it's okay. You don't have to use the translation I do. Those will be the, the passage we'll have up on the screen if you want to follow along that way as well. That's easier for you. Now, the, the first three verses of our passage, they offer a pretty bleak outlook, right? This is the tension, the problem. It's a, it's a bleak outlook of our situation and why we needed saving. Let's take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Death, disobedience, passions of the flesh, children of wrath, right? Heavy language, <laughs> sobering state, hard way to start the morning, right? Uh, hard, hard situation. And the passage, right, it's, it starts with the word and, right? And uh, I didn't major in English, but that tells me something, it came off of something, right? So uh, it, it's clear this is, this is linked to what came prior, right? Our passage from last week is carried forward here. The and is unpacking that, right? And last week we saw in our passage that, that we were chosen by God, adopted into his family, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and sealed for salvation by the Holy Spirit, Right? Very uplifting. <laughs> Very much the opposite of what we just read. Death, disobedience, destined for wrath. Quite the opposite. Every one of us, all humanity, since sin entered God's perfect creation, every one of us has been walking around spiritually dead. We're the walking dead. Part of the curse of Adam it brought, Adam brought on humanity by disobeying God was death, spiritual death, separation from God. That's the situation we find ourselves in. See, but, but our hearts, are, uh, as created beings, we, we are meant to, to follow God, to worship Him, to be with Him, to be in the presence of something greater than ourselves. We were made to worship. So in the absence of the presence of God, we make other gods, most often ourselves and others as gods. And we worship them in his place. This was the crafty serpent's plan all along. Right? We saw this back in Genesis 3 in Advent, right? Uh, if he could get us to, to, be, to believe the lie that we could be like God, to grasp at equality with God, we would fracture the relationship with God, and then we would continually make and remake ourselves as God in our own eyes. And that's spiritual death. Each time we make an idol and we follow after it, we follow in the ways of the crafty serpent. Each time we pursue grades, money, career, success, relationships, a bigger and better house or car, our self-image, 
Each time we search after these things to make us whole, to fix us, to to make our lives better, to find our happiness, to find our, our wholeness, right? We follow in the courses of the world, the ways of the crafty serpent. We follow in the ways of the world. See, anything we put our trust in is an idol. Anything we look to to make us whole, to to complete us, to find our meaning, our purpose in our lives. Anything we look to outside of God is an idol. And and the thing about idols is they're really hard to detect in the moment, right? They're really hard to see until they fail us, and and then we realize we need more of it, and that's the indication, right? That's an idol. But we look for more of it, so, so we realize, ah, well, maybe I just need a better job, or maybe I just need more money, or, or a different relationship. And so we, we find that it didn't quite complete us to get what we were after. And so we, we look for more of it, or we look for a replacement, right? Find a new job, divorce your spouse and find a new one, buy the new car, whatever it is. Switch your major, aim for better grades. See, the problem is that apart from God, these things, they're never going to be the solution. They're never going to complete us. They're just idols. This is the way of the world. The course of the world, one of the descriptions, Paul, four descriptions Paul offers of the state of our death, the purpose or the, the ways we walk in our spiritual death. The world around us, it offers so much promise for happiness, right? Buy this product, do this thing, be in this relationship, get this job, get that grade. All these things offering happiness, wholeness, Self-help, self-actualization, right? It's all fleeting. It's all hollow. Without God, it won't satisfy. It's what Jesus calls building our house on sand instead of a firm foundation, right? The sand shifts and it moves. These things are shifting sand. We can't put our trust in them. Yet that's what we run after. That's what our society has told us to run after. That's what we're conditioned to run after. Those are the gods we worship. That's the first of Paul's description, right? He goes on, he doesn't stop there, though. He, he, he tells us that we weren't just following the, the ways of the world, the course of the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, right? Which is, which is a clear reference to the evil one, to Satan, right? To, to the crafty serpent that I already referred to. And this can be hard for us to swallow culturally, Right? Because we don't think of the world around us just being, oh, uh, this, it's all, you know, Satan's controlling it or he's, he's behind it, right? right? We think often when we hear the evil one or we think about Satan, we think of like really dark, scary, intense evil, right? Aggressive evil like the exorcist, right? Or, or like a horned beast that is just terrifying. And that's true. Like he is scary, right? Um, but often... Often, the prince of the power of the air is more crafty, more subtle. The leadings of the evil one, they're, they're less in your face and demonstrative of, of maybe how the movie The Exorcist would show us or, or have us believe, right? He's the influencer of, our, of the world around us, right? That's leading people astray, constantly pulling them to false gods, to worship themselves, to seek self-gratification, Keep us distracted and keep our focus away from the true God. Following the prince of the air, it looks like having a heart that already worships ourselves or others and doesn't have room for God anymore. Not looking for God because I already have something I'm worshiping. It looks like being too distracted to hear God's voice in our own lives, right? 
Open up Facebook and I don't have to feel anything. Open up Instagram, just keep scrolling. It looks like ignoring God because the riches and the offerings of this world, they've captivated me and I'm just, I don't have time for it. I don't have time to think. I'm just pursuing it. Pursuing more, bigger gains. Following the Prince of the Air, that's the second of four descriptions Paul offers of our spiritual death. And he continues on in this dark explanation of our death, right? It, gets, it goes on. He tells us that we're controlled by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And this carries with it the notion of an animalistic nature, right? Controlled by the need to eat, sleep, and procreate. We can summarize it that simply. Those that live controlled by the passions of the flesh, flesh are unrestrained and have reduced the beauty of their God-given humanity, the beauty of their creation, of who they are. They've reduced it to the urges of an animal-like behavior. Whatever the body wants you pursue, whatever the mind thinks you act on, there's, there's no restraint. Enslaved, actually. Enslaved by your bodily desires. Now, in our daily lives, the common grace of God has, has put institutions, laws, governing bodies to, to help curb this sum in our society, right? To keep us from just taking what we want from other people, right? Or... Uh, just to, to protect those that, that you know, might be less, uh, less able to protect themselves. There's some restraint on this behavior. So we hardly see it carried out to its fullness of today. But, but as a thought exercise, this is why the flood took place, if you want to go back to Genesis and think about that, just as a side tangent. It says that in the days of Noah, everybody always everywhere was doing evil. They were unrestrained in this way. They were dead and living with an animalistic nature. And so God restarted. Let's start over. Controlled by the passions of the flesh, it's a bleak uh, outlook if taken to its conclusion. That's the third of four descriptions that Paul offers for our death state. Are you feeling encouraged, Jeff? <laughs> feeling kind of, feeling dead, right? Let's take a look at our final description. He says we were, by nature, children of wrath. The idea here is children destined for God's judgment with no other option, no choice otherwise, no alternative path. And a, a fascinating aside here uh, that, I mean, I just, I get, these things get me excited when I'm studying the text. Um, most uh, scholars will point to, at the time that Paul wrote this, children of wrath was a common way that the, Jew, the Jews of the time would refer to Gentiles. They were children born apart from God's calling, apart from God's choosing. And so they had no purpose other than God's wrath. They were outside God's family. So they were to be judged. Right? The, the point here is children of wrath are, are those destined for God's judgment. Apart from God. Spiritually dead. Here, Paul though, he uses inclusive pronouns, right? We talked about this last week if you were here with us. Often in this book, he's going to say you or we. He's shifting back and forth his pronoun usage because he's talking to a Jewish audience like himself. He says we, us. He's talking to a Gentile audience, you. He's talking about God including both into his family, right? And what's fascinating is though this was a derogatory term used for Gentiles in his time, Paul says us, we, 
We were children of wrath, all of us, all mankind destined for judgment, all mankind dead. Destined children of wrath, destined for God's judgment and wrath. That's the final description Paul offers for our death, our status. Right? Worldly, following the evil one, controlled by our flesh, destined for wrath. I can't imagine a more bleak outlook. Can't imagine a more sad state. And that's where we all, that's where we all start. That's where all humanity is. The point is this. We are, we're all spiritually dead. We were all uninterested and unable to do anything else but continue on in our death. That was the place we were. We were, we were dead and in need of life support, right? To be brought to life, right? Something dead can do nothing to change its status. That's what we were. We were dead. We needed an intervention. So why did God save us? Because we needed it, right? Because we were dead. We had no hope. We were without any chance of helping ourselves. And so God purposely saved us. He intervened. That's where we get to see in the next part of our passage. Let's continue reading. Let's find the hope that is uh, here in our hopeless situation. We continue on. uh, Picking up in verse 4, we're going to see God's motive or or his desire to save us. So verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, right? One of the most needed phrases after what we just read, right? But God, so refreshing. He intervenes in our helpless and hopeless state. But God stepped in. He did so on account of his rich mercy and great love for us, right? The emphasis here, it's it's over the top in the language, right? God's mercy is, it's rich, it's immeasurable, it's lavish, right? We talked about last week. Because it had to be. Our, our sin and disobedience to God, we were deserving of wrath, deserving of death, just, just, just like we saw, we just unpacked. Yet God didn't leave us there. He intervened. That is mercy. He intervened when he didn't have to. He, he withheld our due punishment that we deserve. He did it not only because he's a merciful God, he did it because he loved us. Because he's a loving God. His love is is great, it's overflowing, it's never-ending, it's unstopping. And that's made clear in him making us alive in Christ. When we were dead, he made us alive. God's mercy and love are felt in our lives every day. I, I try to keep this perspective as I go through my day, right? When I wake in the morning, it's God's mercy that I have breath in my lungs, that I have another day. When I gather with you, when I see the beauty in creation around me, when I see it in you, when I see Christ in you, it's God's love. It's him wooing me back to him. It's it's him reminding me of, I was dead and now I'm alive. You were dead and now you're alive too. Yet 
Yet these simple things, right, these are just echoes. They're echoes, the reminders of how great God's love is and how on full display it is as he raises us with Christ, as he brings life to, 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 out of death, just as he did with Jesus, right? Just as Jesus was raised from the grave, so too we have been raised to new life with him. Just as Jesus ascended to heaven, so too we have a place before the throne of God to worship him once again in person. Jesus lives, so we live. Because Jesus was made alive, raised and seated in heaven, so too are we. Because we have been united with Christ. We're made one body if in Christ. Our lives, they are hidden in Christ. He is our life, Paul says in Colossians. Jesus lives, so we live. We've been united with Christ. Paul, throughout this entire book, he uses in Christ over and over and over again, reminding us that we have been united with Christ. We were dead, and God intervened in Christ. Out of his mercy and love, he made us alive again in Christ. This is why Jesus teaches about being born again, about being born of the Spirit, born from above in, in John chapter 3. You can read that. Because the antidote to death is new life in Christ. Life in Christ is the antidote. All of this, all of this is because of the grace of God. New life isn't what we deserved. We do nothing to earn it or to gain it. God decided to give it to us in Christ, acting out of his mercy and love, and in grace he made us alive in Christ. So why did God save us? Because he is a merciful God who loves us. Out of his love and mercy, he purposefully saved us. Let's continue on with the final reason for why God saved us as we pick up the final few verses of our passage here we see what God's intention for our lives, why he saved us, what he saved us for. Picking up in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here we have the most clear statement that I can imagine about what we contribute to our salvation? The answer is absolutely nothing, right? Not a single thing, not a single work, not a future potential, right? Not a, anything about us. Nothing made us worthy of being saved. If we had, if there had been any part of us or any contribution we have to offer to this equation, we would be tempted to boast, right? We'd make it a competition. We'd think more of ourselves. We'd, we'd look uh, upon others as lesser than us, right? Now, our salvation is a gift from God. He raises us to new life so that he can showcase his grace and, the work that, and, call, and uh, call us to the work that he's prepared for us to do, right? It, it's dependent on God. Salvation is a gift is the point. God offers it as a free gift. There's no strings attached. There's no exchange necessary. No gift required in response. It's a free gift. We only need to receive it. And the mechanism for receiving the gift is faith. Faith in Jesus as the only one who's made you alive. 
Faith in God gives us new life. Faith is how we receive salvation. Right? Faith, faith looks like trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. Faith looks like worshiping him alone and ridding our lives of idols when we notice them. Right? Faith looks like finding our heart's desire in God and living for him rather than out of our own fleshly desires. Paul refers to us here as, as God's workmanship, right? God's masterpiece, his handiwork. We are God's creation, right? We were created for a purpose, designed with intentionality and care. In Christ, we have been recreated and restored to that purpose, right? Your intellect, your interests, your major, your personality, your temperament, right? your family upbringing, your gender, your hair color, your skin color. All of it was intentionally designed by God. There are no accidents in God's creation. God created you intentionally. He created you for a purpose. We were created to worship. We were created for work in his creation. And in Christ, we've been raised to new life to carry out that purpose. See, humanity was the capstone of God's creation, his special helper, right? The stewards of his creation. We were given a purpose to carry out. Humanity, we're the only part of creation that bears the image of God, right? We represent God to the creation around us, to each other. We're the image bearers of God. We reflect God to the world around us as a unique purpose and calling. And in Christ, we've been created for that work in creation. We've been restored to that creation. We've been raised back to new life to carry out that purpose. So why did God save us? Because we were created for a purpose, to carry out the work of God in creation, to live for God, to be image bearers of God. So God purposely saved us for the work he designed us for, to return us to being his image bearers. And so this morning, as we come to the end of our passage, right? We've explored just one more sentence in Paul's letter, right? One more sentence, a deep, dense sentence revealing the heart of the gospel, right? We learn that, we see that we were dead and destined for destruction, and yet God intervened and saved us. And he saved us by grace through faith in Christ, not by anything we've done or will do, Yet we've been saved for a purpose, to do the work of God. So why did God save us? He saved us because he's a gracious God, right? At the heart of this is because he's a gracious God. He's a loving God, right? You can, you can think about these 10 verses uh, as maybe a summary uh, of the entire book of Ephesians, or really maybe a summary of the entire story of God in 10 tightly packed verses we saw uh, that we were hopeless and helpless right we, we there was nothing we could do we were dead in our sins yet yet God in his grace he intervened and though we were dead God made us alive in Christ and then and then we saw that that we weren't just made alive to be alive. We were made alive for a purpose, to live for God. 
out of eternally grateful hearts filled with love for the God who loves us, we represent him to those around us. We live for him just as we were designed to do. And that's the heart of the gospel. You were dead. Jesus made you alive. Now you get to live for him. And so Alani Life, let us be people who daily walk in the grace of God and do the work he prepared for us in advance. Let us be people who bear his image to the world around us as we live with, like, and for Jesus throughout our days. As we proclaim this truth that we were dead, we're now alive, and we live in Christ. Will you pray with me?